Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you've had a great week. I'm awfully glad to have Pastor Pat Nemers back on the show. He's written a very interesting book called Retractions. I'm curious as to what other names this book might have been. Plate of <laughs> Eating Crow could have been a, a topic yep. uh, title as well. Pat, I mean, what other titles did you kick around for this book? Actually, Bill, thank you for having me back. And that was I can honestly tell you that's the one before I wrote the book, that is the word that came to my mind, retractions. I was, I was uh, contemplating something I'd read years ago. Augustine, you know, one of the early church fathers actually wrote a book called retractionaceous, the Latin version of it, where he was basically sort of uh, not really repenting, but changing some of his views. I just, the, the very term just grabbed me. And that would be a great title for a book on cultivating humility. That's what I did. I love it. So in your book, and I've enjoyed the book tremendously, I was uh, got a little hung up in Chapter 4, which talked about the lure of legalism. And one day you were uh, preaching, and you sort of got off on a little bit of a an extra-biblical trail and got <laughs> reprimanded by a, a lovely man named Bill. I'm not going to do that to you today, but I would still love to hear... That exchange, I know it kind of, you felt wounded by it, um, but he made a point. Yeah, he made a point. It really was an ultimate, uh, the ultimate mic drop, and I wasn't the one who gave the mic, if you, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. The chapter is the lure of legalism, and just to, just, just to predicate what I, the answer to your question with this, you know, some people connect legalism with some form of militancy, militant Christianity. And certainly I was sort of in that arena at one time, but I've come to realize that legalism is so insidious, it can creep into all of us, whether you're in a church you think is a great, great church and probably is, and you're walking with Jesus and you probably are, but legalism is something very insidious. It's actually part of our human nature. And that was also part of the reason why I wrote this chapter. So just a little, I thought I'd throw that out there for what it's worth, Bill. Yeah. Um, so just to answer your question, yeah. um, Bill, the other Bill, that is, uh, Bill Clark was a godly, godly man, and I really loved him. He was one of my greatest encouragers. Uh, so this really came as a, I was incredulous, to say the very least. And in those days, I was young, super young, preaching the Word of God expositionally, and yet I just took a lot of extra biblical positions on on certain areas of my life, areas very difficult to and understandable to some of your listeners, I'm sure, music and all kind of dress and things like that. And I was uh, and I took positions, I almost raised them to the level of of uh, of scripture, which you know, I would never have admitted it then. But I I was sort of judging others on the basis of whether or not they had my view or my position on this and and I don't even recall what it was I preached on that morning. But I went extra biblical on some sub, some such uh, subject, and Bill, who again was one of my greatest encouragers, he 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 just couldn't take it anymore. 
And, uh, well, people were walking through the line, shaking my hand. You know, you know, the pastor has to do his howdies, you know, at the end of the service. And uh, so uh, that was supposed to be funny, by the way, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh-huh. but anyway, uh, I'm shaking hands. And, you know, I've got a, I mean, I've, I've sort of amassed my own army of legalists. I mean, a lot of getting a lot of attaboys, you know, for my message. And But Bill, the other Bill, uh shook my hand. I could just see a graveness about him. And, uh, and I said, Hey, Bill, I, I probably even solicited him. I don't remember this for sure. I probably said, Hey, what'd you think of the message or something? Uh, well, you know, which is a prideful man's way of saying, you know, give me another attaboy. And right. uh, so he just looked at me very sternly and he said, stick, stick with the Bible's sins, pastor. There's plenty of them to preach and walked away. You talk about a mic drop. Yeah. That was a big time mic drop for me. So it was because of that that I mean, and in that moment, I just started to mumble and tried to explain my reasonings, and I think I just made him more sad because he was a man of God. He was a man of the Bible. He was a Bible man. And he loved the Scripture. He was a great teacher of the Bible, and I, he just became very sad because he could tell I was trying to explain or excuse something that was really inexcusable, I'd gone beyond the Word of God, which the last I checked, that's not something that God smiles uh, uh, greatly upon. No, so true. So when you went beyond the Word of God, were you injecting some of your own preferences, or were you suggesting to your, your congregation that I'd really like for you to do it my way because I think this is the right way? What were you thinking? Yeah, probably a little bit of both. I mean, uh, I I definitely they were my preferences, but I would I I would put them into the realm of convictions at the time. And that that's you know when when we talk about convictions and preferences preferences, I'm sure you we've had you've had these discussions before. They're really different, are they not? And uh in my understanding, convictions belong to what the scripture teaches. And uh preferences belong to areas I may feel strongly about but I'm not about to superimpose them upon someone else because they don't necessarily find their grounding uh, completely in the Word of God. Mm-hmm. So, Pat, I'm wondering, as we chat about this, if you know specifically, if you recall the topic that you were addressing, not that I'm going to ask you to to, uh, to to say it all right now, but, I mean, do you remember that the specific topic that, that you were sharing with your congregation that got Bill, the other Bill saying, uh, stick to the Bible, Pastor. Well, I can, I can mention several of the topics okay. that I addressed. And I'm going to, I'm going to suggest that it was probably music. Okay. Because back in the eighties, music was kind of a big deal. Movies, you know, movies, dress, marriage, divorce, alcohol. These are all areas that, you know, have some shades of gray to them, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so, um, but music was a big, big deal. It was a big deal to me. So I'm going to guess, and that's all it is. It was probably on music. And, and you know, I, I say that also because, Bill, the end your intro, I, I, got a, I got a hoot out of it. I couldn't help it because I'm a 70s guy. I couldn't yeah. help but miss the Fleetwood Mac music that was instrumental that was going on before you were introduced here, you know. Lindsey Buckingham. That, check, what's that? Lindsey Buckingham, one of the great there you go. guitarists you go. of all time. You know, that's a great <laughs> lick. <laughs> so anyway, you know, the thing about it is I I have a very strong personality and 
Uh, and the thought occurred to me later on down the line, just because you are strong on a certain issue doesn't make you biblical. It just makes you strong. And But we can be swayed by people that are that speak with great authority, can we not? Mm-hmm. And I have. I'm guessing you probably have too as well. And, and um, you know, I was so – I was so humbled by Bill's statement. Uh, it did get it. It did give me pause because I had such great respect for him because he was such a man of God, and he was really a Bible guy, which is kind of what you know I I esteemed myself as. But I probably was a Bible plus guy. Let's put it that way, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, and some of the scripture that God began to really work in my heart on was like First Corinthians four verse six, where the Apostle Paul writes. He says to the Corinthians, and we all know the Corinthians were, <laughs> they were, uh, you know, that group of people that, that we're thankful for the book because we wouldn't know how to deal with half the problems we have to deal with in the church, right, if, if it wasn't for the Corinthians. But he says to them, he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that, and this is the key phrase that really jumped out to me, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Oftentimes, Bill, when I'm preaching things like this, I'll stop and look at our congregation at Sailorville Church, and I'll say, have you ever read that? I mean, look, listen to this. Not to go beyond what is written, because if you do, the rest of the Scripture says you get puffed up, you become prideful. And I think that legalism is, um, is something that allows us to retain some of our pride. And again, last I checked, that's not something God loves to have in his children. Yeah, so true. Pastor Pat Nemers is my guest. He's written a book uh, called Retractions. And when you even talk about the word retractions, what do you mean by that, Pat? So when you retract something, you're taking it back, are you not? Yes. You know, so I retract that last statement. I retract yes. that, that thought. And uh, so basically that's what it is. It's me taking back some of the positions. In this case, we're talking about one chapter and 12 chapters. And I deal with many of them in my own life personally. Uh, you're taking it back. You're repenting. You're you're acknowledging your your wrongheadedness in that particular uh, realm, whatever it may be uh, talking. What we might be talking about in this case, legalism. I I I I took a strong stand against uh, theological legalism, and I would hope every Christian would have a uh, a good view of against theological legalism. Theological legalism is adding to the gospel, adding to what Jesus did for us uh, for salvation, whereas practical spiritual legalism is, is, is a little different. It's basically adding to the Word of God uh, in areas, you know, you, you know, again, using man-made uh, thinking beliefs to uh, uh, to, to equate that with spirituality, that that's spiritual legalism, and I and all I can think of is, I mean, John MacArthur said something, and to be honest, I put it in my book, and in that chapter, I put this quote in there. I, I can quote it to you without reading it. That's how I, it's it's one of those handful of extra biblical quotes that uh, have really stuck with me, and it really was powerful. MacArthur once said, "A human standard might be more lenient than Scripture." or more restrictive than Scripture, but it can never be better than Scripture. Isn't that a great line? Yeah, that's a tremendous line. I, I, I got That got my attention when I read it in your book. Cool. And I, cool. Love, the Wears, I love the Wearsby quote, too, at the, at the end. 
The I think of that chapter. Quoted, that's powerful. That is powerful. And I'm glad you, you took note of that because um, the Wearsby quote, actually, there's a, there's a really fun story behind it, if, I, if you don't mind me, and if you'll Please. indulge me with the Please. story. Uh, uh, young man, I'll just name him, Zach Fisher. He's a young pastor. He pastors a church in, uh, down in southeast Iowa now. But he was just a theological student at the time. He was young, probably 22-year-old kid, young man, rather. And he went through the line. When you know, doing that during the handshaking time, this is probably 15 years ago. He shook my hand and he said, Because he goes, I noticed that you quoted Dr. Wearsby in your message, and I said, I sure did. And he said, You know, that's really cool because he's a friend of mine. And I literally looked at him, I said, Yeah, right. I started <laughs> laughing. He goes, He goes, Uh, no, man, like, like he's my friend. Nice. And I went, What are you talking about? And as it turned out, Zach lived in the very area where Dr. Wearsby lived in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. He was from Lincoln, Nebraska, and through a series of circumstances, met him at a church. And Dr. Wearsby, who in, in his own words said, he goes, he goes, I'm under house arrest. This is what he's in retirement years. You know, he was not really healthy. But so because he was at home most of the time, he invited Zach every other week to spend three hours with him. Wow. And and so this young man had become a close friend of Wearsby. So Wearsby invited me to his home. I got to meet Dr. Wearsby a couple of years before he died. It was a great privilege. And one day, Dr. Wearsby was just, you know, doodling on his, you know, while he was also writing. And he thought of his friend, Zach, and he wrote him. Uh, uh, and may, are you looking at it or do you want me to read it? I am looking at it right now. Why don't you read it? That's pretty. It's, I think it's good. I'd love to hear from somebody else. Yeah. He, he scratched out these words and sent them to Zach, and it said, Zach, there's a difference between convictions, opinions, and prejudices. With convictions, we say, I know, and are willing to go to jail for it. With opinions, we say, I think, and are willing to consider other points of view. With prejudices, we say, I feel, and really don't have reasons why. Hmm. Another mic drop. That's a mic drop. Yeah. And, and you know, to me, that's actually, to me, that a counselor could give that out as a, as a sort of a governor in a conversation. I mean, wouldn't that be a great governor in a conversation between somebody that you differed with on a particular issue or maybe even a theological issue that isn't salvific or, you know, doesn't, you know, the, the difference is not going to be a matter of heaven or hell, but it's a difference and we have our differences. And, you know, am I willing to go to jail for this difference? You know, am I willing to consider somebody else's point of view? Mm-hmm. Or is it just, or is it just me operating off of my feelings? I think Wearsby has really brought something out here. Yeah, that's a solid point. Let me take a little break. Reverend Pat Nemers is my guest. His book is called Retractions. It is a doozy, and I think you would love it. You can always go check out the first chapter. I think Amazon always offers you that. You can get a nice feel for the book. You can go uh, learn more about uh, that at Amazon.com or wherever you like to buy books. We'll be right back with Pat in just a minute. Back with Pat Nemers. His book is Retractions, and we are uh, chatting a little bit today about legalism. I know Jesus had some things to say to the Pharisees about their legalism. 
Well, he sure did. And uh, in fact, if, and we're not going to take the time to read that entire section that I put in the book. But in, if you if you were to look up Matthew chapter 23, about the entire chapter is his seven denunciations of the Pharisees for being as legalistic as they were. And I would just say in addition, Bill, that I think it's a good thing for each of us as Christians, those of us who are truly followers of Jesus, you know, to remind ourselves that adding to God's word, which is, you know, basic legalism, is a temptation that's sort of intrinsic to our nature. Uh, it's, it's, it's natural for us. I think we feel good about ourselves. We, I, I don't, I, I can't, I'm not a psychoanalyst. I'm not going to be able to explain it all, but I do think that when we add to scripture, uh, it's sort of intrinsic to our nature to do so. That's why we need to be tied to scripture so that we don't go beyond the scripture. Yeah. Pat, you know, it might be really helpful for listeners if we do a little diagnostic and help them walk through this. We can go through these quickly, but you you might be legalistic uh, if when you go to read your Bible, you, you want to just check off the fact you did it rather than to meet with God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're referring to the 14 signs that I have. I am, and, yes. And, uh, and, and you're... You're, you have my permission to put those up on your website if you want to. These are not entirely mine, but mostly they are. Right. Uh, they're not. I mean, as you read through them, you probably thought, "Well, I probably read that somewhere before." But, but that's one of them. I just, I just met with a young man that I'm discipling toward ministry uh, that we led to Christ here just a year and a half ago this morning, and uh, you know, he was telling me that he's had a great time in the Word of God, but he had admittedly missed a couple of days of reading the Scripture, and he could hear my voice in his head saying. Don't leave the house without reading your Bible. I love it. But, it's, and, but I said to him, I said, Zach, I said, I don't want you to get legalistic about this. In other words, you're not spiritual just because you read your Bible. But if you don't read your Bible, you're not going to be spiritual. It's just that simple. Yeah. And, uh, and, it, and it's all about my attitude and my motive. And if I think just because I've read the Bible, that's a, that check mark is making me spiritual. That's a legalistic tendency. Mm-hmm. Pat, you also might be legalistic if you refuse to forgive although you've been forgiven, or mm. you judge others before you listen to them. Yeah. Or yeah, you sure. justify yourself by comparing yourself to others. Mm. You might yeah. be legalistic if you spend time only with saved people. Yeah, that's a big one. And I think our listeners need to consider what you just said. That's the ninth one. You spend time only with saved people. Mm-hmm. I've had people actually admit that to me. I've had people humbly acknowledge that to me. That's a, that's the only people you hang with. I mean, you've literally closed yourself into a world that Jesus called us to reach for the gospel. Mm-hmm. You separate your spiritual life from your natural life. If you do that, you might be legalistic. Mm. That, what do you think of that, Bill? I, th- <laughs> <laughs> I think it's time for a break. We're talking to Pat Nembers. We'll be right back. I tried to get out of that one. It didn't work. Um, That was pretty good. uh, Thank you so much. You know, I think it's uh, that that's where the rubber meets the road is. Are you are you one person or do you split your life up into the spiritual side of you? And then there's you. Yeah. Didn't the psalmist say unite my heart to fear your name? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all have, you know, when we behind closed doors, we're probably a little different than otherwise. We let our hair down a little bit, perhaps. Yeah much as possible legalism says i'm the same person which by the way a hypocrite by definition is somebody who's not themselves 
Right. And I know we're not on videos, um, so you can't see that I can't let my hair down. But thank you uh, for bringing that up, making that an option. Um, how about you make little things big and big things little? So you might be legalistic if you're doing that. Yeah, that's a huge, huge point. You're, again, I think it's worth repeating. You make When you make little things big and big things little, just the other day, I, another young man I mentor is in a very militaristic church, and he had some people that said to him, uh, he, they haven't reached anybody in their community for years. Nobody has come to know Jesus and been baptized and joined in the church. And, uh, and, and yet somebody said to him, if you bring that modern music into our church, we're going to leave. Oh, wow. That's somebody making little things big and big things little. Mm. How about you might be legalistic if you're more interested in conformity than conversion? Mm. And that's the very definition of a legalist. Is yeah. You need to be, Bill Arnold, you need to be like me. That's more. It's more important that you look like me or you do what I say rather than be converted by the Spirit of God and be changed by the Word of God as the Holy Spirit of God works in your life. Mm-hmm. And you might be legalistic if you love the praise of men more than the smile of God. Yeah, that was that was one of mine. I, I just, that's, I probably, I think there's a little narcissism in all of us, and I'm talking to myself here, Bill. I mean, we all love to be encouraged, right? But I remember the greatest, the greatest uh, counsel I got was from Chuck Swindoll, who once said, Chuck Swindoll, I was at a meeting with him, and he said one day, he said, we ought to tra- treat praise like we uh, uh, treat bubblegum. Chew on it for a while, but make sure you spit it out. <laughs> I do like that. Yeah. 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 Well, Pat, we're almost out of time, and I, I would want to just remind my listeners that you had an opportunity to share some of your uh, mistakes publicly with a bunch of pastors, and it made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're very glad you did it, which kind yeah. of motivated you, motivated you to write this book. It is. And in fact, it's been my joy to be able to tell this story uh, repeatedly. In fact, I get to do it again here in just about uh, about 24 hours in, in Michigan. I'm in, living in Iowa. Uh, but uh, it's a joy to be able to do it because the subtitle of Retractions, the name of the book, is Cultivating Humility After Humiliation. And the premise of the book, Bill, is just because we've blown it or we've sinned or we've screwed up, We've asked God to forgive us. It doesn't mean we shouldn't continue to confess it, not because we need our sins further forgiven, but because we can help people to prevent them from doing the same thing, and it cultivates humility in our own lives. Mm -hmm. Pat, you're a delight. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. I have enjoyed not only our conversation, but your book is really, really nice. Thank you for writing it, and thank you for sharing wisdom with us today. Thank you so much, Bill, for having me again. Yep. Good luck on your conference coming up in Michigan, and we'll look forward to having you back on the program another time. Thanks. God bless you, my friend. You bet. You bet. Pastor Pat Nemers is our guest, and the book was called Retractions. We'll take a break. When we come back, Dr. Greg Heddington will continue the study in the book of Daniel. That's all next.
let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. All right, you might think that when I have Dr. Greg Heddington on, my job gets easy, but it doesn't because although he does exceptional teaching, I am busy taking notes because he is an awesome Bible teacher, and I'm always glad to have him on the show. We are going to start our study. We started it last time he was on with the book of Daniel, and today we're going to jump into Daniel chapter 1. Greg, welcome back. Bill, thanks. Thanks for the kind words. Well, welcome to lesson number one in our study of the book of Daniel as we look at chapter 1. Let's review what we talked about last time. Uh, Roman number one, if you're taking notes, review. After an 18-month siege in which King Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian army surrounded Jerusalem and restricted all people from coming or going out of the city, the starving Jews finally surrendered to their enemies in 605 B.C. It seemed like the principal god of the Babylonians named Marduk and Nebuchadnezzar had utterly defeated the god of the Israelites. Unlike the Assyrian army before them in 722 B.C., which had decimated the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, let's remember the kingdom was divided into two between north and south. The Assyrians took the Jewish women back to their country to intermarry with them after executing all the men and babies. And the Babylonians, however, used a different strategy on the southern kingdom of Judah by taking the best and brightest young men from the royal Jewish families of Judah Historians believe most of the boys, by the way, were teenagers. If they were were using a sports lingo, we'd call them blue chips or first-round picks. And these boys were marched east 500 miles across the Arabian Desert to re-educate them as Babylonians. So we have two great cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. The kingdoms of humankind, that would be Babylon, and the kingdom of God, Jerusalem. These two cities symbolize the two choices we have all had to make ever since, well, way back with our first parents in the Garden of Eden. Two ways, two masters, two gates, two kingdoms opposing one another. And so the title of this lesson is Kingdoms in Conflict. Although we will not see his name in this book, the presence of Jesus the Christ is clear. And in Matthew 6.33, He points us toward the only legitimate choice when he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, let's look at chapter 1, verse 1, which gives the same information one would find in any history book. Here we go, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, we know what a siege is if we know that Jerusalem had been surrounded and cut off from all supplies for 18 months, which led the people to starvation and cannibalism, according to the historian Josephus, who lived in Jerusalem at the time. But the second verse of Daniel is from a very different perspective. As the curtain of the unseen world is pulled back, to expose a very different reality. In this lesson, I'm going to do something a little different from previous lessons. I'm going to first give some application of these themes for us, then return to the historical account, and then more application for us. 
By the way, that expression, pull back the curtain, reminds us of that wonderful American movie, The Wizard of Oz, when Dorothy and her friends finally arrive at the Emerald City so that Dorothy can meet the Wizard of Oz. Sadly, she discovers that the wizard is a terrifying face of fire who is of no help to her until her dog, Toto, pulls back the curtain to reveal a very simple man who is using special effects in order to appear as the great and powerful Oz. Remember that scene? Oh, beautiful. Well, I'll tell you what, it was scary when I saw it as a little boy for the first (laughs) time, but it was not as scary as the Wicked Witch of the West. Agree. That was the scariest. Well, that is not an exact comparison with our scripture, because Nebuchadnezzar was, in fact, a great and powerful king. He was the greatest king, in fact, of the known world. But the writer of Daniel, none other than Daniel himself, pulls back the curtain in verse 2 to show us the scriptural reality behind the appearance. In verse 2, we discover how an unseen reality explains just how the Babylonians were able to overthrow the Jews. So here it is, verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, needless to say, you will not read the words, the Lord, in any history book. So, verse 1, you can just view it as secular history, and verse 2 is biblical theology. Now, we've seen and we have the seen and we have the unseen, two ways of looking at life. And there are two perspectives which are interwoven. Number one, throughout this book. Number two, throughout all of Scripture. And number three, throughout our lives, two different realities. Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, if you, I wondered when he was a boy, you know, I have a long name like that. Do you think his buddies called him Nebo or? (laughs) He had a lot of nicknames, I bet. He'd have to, you know, kids always want to shorten the name, but okay, my point is (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar had an overwhelming army, but scripture tells us that is not why Judah was crushed. Instead, it was the purpose and the action of God himself that caused Jerusalem to fall, even though that does seem counterintuitive, to say the least. Now, why did Jerusalem fall? Because the master of the universe has a plan. And verse 2 introduces us to the theme of this book. And what is the theme of Daniel? This is one to keep in mind the whole time. God is in control of everything. In fact, the Hebrew word used in verse 2 for the word Lord is the word Adonai, which refers to God's ownership and control of his earth and everything in it. And the primary intent of this book is to reinforce the fact that God is sovereign. Good word. In fact, we can define sovereign as God is all-powerful, and he has a purpose, and he will achieve that purpose. If you're taking notes, Roman numeral 2, a thought for the week. Now, regarding the subject of the unseen world, here's something to think about this week. Here's a proposition that's kind of a long one. If we live in a world in which the unseen reality is more significant than what we see around us, because what we see around us is not the ultimate reality, and since we have a God who's beyond time and space, who routinely causes supernatural events to occur, 
does that knowledge make any difference in how we live our lives? I would hope it would. Perhaps it would cause us to desire to know more about Scripture and to dig deeper so that we can better understand and fulfill the calling God has in our life because every one of us has God-given gifts that God himself called us to do a long time ago. And I'm sure we want to use those gifts. The Apostle Paul says it best, quote, We are his workmanship. And the Greek word for workmanship is poema, which means poem. We are his poem created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand. That means at the very beginning that we should walk in them. That's Ephesians 2 verse 10. And when we have gifts like that, we want to share them with others. So that's a thought for the week before we go further into our lesson. And much of what we're talking about today for us is no different from what people have always faced in life. So, Bill, we're about to start uh, point three. I'm with Dr. Greg Heddington. If you've just joined us, we are uh, starting our study on the book of Daniel. We had an introductory lesson the last time he was on, and now we're delving into chapter one. And you're going to make sure that you don't miss any of this. So let's, uh, let's keep moving ahead, Greg. Okay, Bill, Roman numeral three, kingdoms in conflict. The battle for our hearts and minds is subtle for most of us because we may have already agreed with how the world thinks we should live. There is 24-hour pressure to conform to the image makers. Who are the image makers? Well, they certainly are the highly paid entertainers in the world of film, television, Internet, sports, fashion, social media. In fact, according to multiple studies, the average American in 2022 encountered between 6,000 to 10,000 ads per day. Wow. So no one is immune. We are bombarded every second, perhaps even right now, by our phones vibrating in our pockets or our watches alerting us to some something we need to desperately look at right in the middle of a conversation with someone else. So how do we know that we seek first the kingdom of God? Well, let's look at the word first. It's an acrostic, F-I-R-S-T. First F is Jesus first in our finances. This is not only includes how we spend our money, but we do we give to the kingdom work. I is Jesus first in our interests. Do we give him as much time as we do watching TV or playing golf or trolling social media? R is Jesus first in our relationships. Do we love others well? Do we listen well? Do we forgive well? S, is Jesus first in our schedules? Time is our greatest commodity, so we spend time in prayer serving and study of, of his word as well. And T, is Jesus first when we have troubles? Do we trust that he is God who can handle our problems? When we have troubles, do we go to the phone or do we go to the throne? Two different choices, kingdoms and conflict. Are we consumed by how this world tells us how to live? Or do we trust that God is working out all things ultimately for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose? And that's Romans 8.28. Scripture reveals to us a God who longs to be first in our lives, a God who is good, faithful, merciful, forgiving, compassionate, who is full of grace and abounding in steadfast love. As we keep this conflict in our minds, which the Jews in Babylon faced every day, Let's remember that they had no one but themselves to blame for their captivity. I mean, the nation of Israel did not like oopsie-daisy into the captivity in Babylon. 
They set themselves up for their consequences by, number one, ignoring God's commands, number two, not serving God with joyful hearts, and number three, chasing after other gods, and number four, ignoring the poor and needy. They didn't have just a few off days. They had off centuries. One of the remarkable things about sin is it does not surprise God our Father. I mean, when we sin, he when Adam and Eve sinned, he didn't go, oh, nuts. I thought we were all on the same page about this. Remember, all things are worked out sovereignly by God. It's all plan A. There are no plan Bs. So, Bill, I think that's the time for a good break. All right, sounds good. We're going to take a little break. Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest. We're studying the book of Daniel, and we're going to get through it, and it's going to be fantastic. So we'll be back in just a minute. occasion i say things that are a little confusing so i apologize right before we went to break i said we're studying the book of daniel we're going to get through it what i meant is not today (laughs) we're going to get through it eventually uh, over time but dr greg headington is going to teach us uh through the book of daniel and we're only in chapter one so not in one interview are we going to cover the whole book so uh, we're going to get get it done over time aren't we greg that's a very good explanation thanks bill yeah let's pick up chapter one Okay, Bill, so we're talking about the first chapter of the book of Daniel, and we are just starting to look at the historical account of the Babylonian victory over the Israelites in 586 B.C. They conquered the northern kingdom in 605 B.C., but the southern kingdom in 586 B.C., who they then marched the best and brightest young Jewish teenage boys 500 miles across the Arabian Desert east to Babylon under the rule of the great pagan king Nebuchadnezzar. Again, one of the most powerful men in the world at that time. So if you're taking notes, Roman numeral four, Nebuchadnezzar's strategy. His strategy is fourfold, and it's a clever one because it had worked very well in other countries that he'd conquered before. His first strategy was isolation. The Jewish boys are isolated from the public worship of God and instruction in God's teachings that they had devoted themselves to back in Jerusalem when their parents taught them. Number two strategy, indoctrination. Verse 4 says the boys are taught, quote, the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Well, who are the Chaldeans? Chaldea was in southern Iraq, and Iraq is the country where Babylon is located, still is today. Chaldeans were the elite class of scholars and astrologers who became assimilated into Babylonian culture to the point that the word Chaldea was sometimes used as a synonym to describe the Babylonian Empire. Now, this indoctrination is intended to retrain the minds of the boys to think as Babylonians. And remember, as Dorothy would say, They're no longer in Kansas. Well, in this case, they are no longer in Judah. Number three strategy, compromise. Verse 5 says the boys were given a daily portion of the food that the king ate 
and the wine that he drank. Scholars disagree on what exactly the significance of this diet would mean to Daniel and his three buddies, but it does seem clear that Daniel understood it to be an effort to seduce his three buddies and him into enjoying the pleasures of a lifestyle they had never known before. And the fourth strategy, confusion. Verse 7 says the boys are given Babylonian names in order to confuse them about their true identity in hopes that the boys would yield to the pressure of thinking they are Babylonian rather than called by God to be his servants while in Babylon. And by the way, the names that we know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those are not Hebrew names. Those are the Babylonian names that we've now used even in our scripture. This is kingdoms in conflict. So Daniel and his three buddies make a decision. They will speak the Babylonian language, they will read Babylonian literature, and they will learn a Babylonian trade, but, there's that conjunction, but, they will not bow their knee to any other god than the true God of Israel. Roman numeral five. What does this all mean to us? Well, there are a couple of things. Number five, A, Roman numeral five, A, God's discipline. Did you know that between the time that Charlton Heston, excuse me, Moses received the commandments of God on Mount Sinai and all the way forward to the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., 800 years had passed. I mean, during most of that time between receiving the Ten Commandments and the fall of Jerusalem, well... There's no other way to say it. The Jews of Israel acted like pagans most of the time. So after years of God not disciplining them like he had promised he would back in Deuteronomy 28, which, by the way, that would be an interesting chapter for you to read concerning a really condensed version of all the blessings and curses that God promised to Israel. Ever since that time, God had delayed his discipline for a long time. And the Jews began to think something like this. Okay, I'm just going to kind of make up uh, a fanciful thought about it. They might have thought like this. Well, I guess that expiration date on that promise of discipline from God has passed. After all, how long has it been? What, 800 years now have gone by and still no evidence of God's judgment? Brothers, shall we recite our favorite scripture which describes our Lord? Ready? From Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. After all, all of us Israelites, we love that passage. And apparently, our Abba in heaven loves it too and agrees with it. Okay, that is just a fanciful conversation that could have happened. However, the justice of God does finally fall on the Israelites. Of course, it happens in the fall of Jerusalem. But still, it is not punishment. Now, let's talk about the definitions here. Punishment, by definition, is punitive and not intended to be constructive. This was not punishment. This was discipline. Discipline is meant to be instructive and constructive. God uses discipline to train his people, but discipline is not the final word. Grace is always the final word when it comes to the way God treats 
repentant sinners. And would that we are all repentant sinners, because a lot of people just think, well, it's what we call it, Bonhoeffer called it cheap grace. We can just go in our lifestyle, whatever we want to do. It doesn't really matter. Well, that's not true. We are to be repentant. We are to, Lord, I'm, I'm messed up, and help me. You know, we have to be sincere about it or it's kind of a waste of time. Lord, help me to be better now. Well, I do not know if you've ever experienced discipline of the Lord. I know I have. And it has occurred when I was going the wrong way. And, sorry to say, it has happened more than once. Proverbs 3.12 says, God disciplines those whom he loves. <laughs> During that time of discipline in my life, honestly, I thought to myself, Lord, I wish you didn't love me quite so much. But looking back on that discipline, I am now thankful that he loves me enough to discipline me when I need it. God's plan for the Jews was to be a light to the Gentiles. That was always his plan, according to Isaiah 42, verse 6. But they failed miserably time and time again, as do we. I do not live up to God's standards, and I do not always live up even to my own standards, which are much lower than the Lord's. Sometimes we just wander, which reminds me of that verse from one of my favorite hymns called, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. One of the verses says, Born to wander, Lord, I feel it. Born to leave the God I love. You know, friends, that's right. With that basic sin in our life, we are just born to wander. And you know, it's hard for me to speak for anyone else, but I know how selfish I am. In fact, the most honest thing I can say as a way of introducing myself to a group as a teacher of Scripture would be to simply say, Hi, my name's Greg, and I'm a sinner saved by grace. Now, if I were to hear another teacher of Scripture say that, I'd say, Thank you. Thank you. Me too. Hmm. I wouldn't say it out loud because it's not a 12-step group. But, but the truth yeah. is no one who teaches Scripture is six feet above criticism. Right. Because we all stand on even ground at the foot of the cross of Jesus. We are all in the same boat. We all sin, and there are consequences. But God loves us and waits for us to repent so he can restore us. But the Israelites would not repent of their sins. Big mistake. It's a humbling thing to repent, and it's humbling when we mess up once again. Mm -hmm. But only when we repent can we receive his grace. The Apostle Paul says it perhaps best when he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, and not because of works, lest anyone should boast. That's Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Now, here's the second aspect of this final point. Roman numeral 5b, grace. You might know the story of John Newton. He was an 18th century African slave trader from England. On one of his trips to Africa, he had a dramatic conversion to Christ on board ship and realized what he'd been doing over all those years was evil. He became a staunch abolitionist, and in 1779, he wrote probably the most beloved hymn of the past two centuries, Amazing Grace. 
Newton remained thankful for the rest of his life, became a pastor, and never forgot the grace of his Lord that had, quote, saved a wretch like me. Shortly before his death, Newton wrote these words. Here they are. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Let me say this again. Newton wrote these words just before his death. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Well, finally, in our out-of-control world, Daniel commits to the only rightful ruler who is in control. And when anyone commits to something, that commitment eliminates options. It's a good line. Commitment eliminates options. And because we have seen God's grace in our lives, we know he is faithful. And if we choose to make a commitment to him, he will stand with us firmly between the two kingdoms. And then we will choose the Lord. I spent much of this lesson talking about what's important in our lives. We'll dig deeper into Daniel's life next time. But the point is, God is in control of everything. And that's really the point of the book of Daniel. Well, fantastic, Greg. Thank you so much for taking on this book. Uh, I'm looking forward to watching this unfold over the weeks and months ahead. Thanks, Bill. It's been a joy. You bet. Dr. Greg Headington has been my guest as we continue our study in the book of Daniel. We'll take a break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.